don't talk too much. Just talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hey everybody, welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John. Before we get into it, I have to tell you about Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club is the best artisan soda you've ever had in your life. Why would you drink something like Coca-Cola, right? It's low, it's, it's not even granulated sugar anymore they're using in this stuff, right? It's high fructose corn syrup. It's just loaded with this stuff. Um, it's, it's overly carbonated. Get yourself some Yacht Club Soda. Go to yachtclubsoda.com right now and check out some of the amazing flavors they've got. They've got blue raspberry. They've got orange cream. They've got regular cream. They've got root beer, grape. They've got so many flavors, pineapple, grapefruit. It goes on and on and on. And they use only all natural cane sugar in their soda. So please go to yachtclubsoda.com today and order some for yourself. Okay, everybody on the show today, um, really excited about this conversation. We have uh, Jacob Daniel Winograd, um, who is the host of the Biblical Anarchy podcast, which is through the Libertarian Christian Institute. Um, Jacob knows a lot about the Bible and um, has a really, really unique perspective on anarchism, uh, libertarianism through sort of the Christian lens. Um, and uh, so I'm really excited that he's coming on the show. Um, to talk about some of these issues. Um, I, I, I myself am a Quaker, um, and a lot of my libertarianism is, is centered around a sense of morality and, and, and what's right and wrong. So this should be a great conversation. So uh, Jacob, welcome to the show. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you um, because, um, you know, uh, we're both libertarians and um, you're one of the few people I think I've, I've really listened to sort of or heard in the libertarian space whose libertarianism is very directly tied to their faith and to their Christianity. Um, and I'm very much the same way. And so, uh, you know, I, I haven't actually encountered a lot of other people like myself um, out there. And so uh, when I stumbled across your podcast, um, I, I, I met you, know, as I mentioned uh, before we started recording, I, I heard your podcast with Dave Smith and they were, they were fantastic. And I, I loved every second of them. Um, and so I have a ton of questions, a ton of questions. Um, and I think where I'd like to start is I just want to find out a little bit more about you and sort of your own evolution. Um, were, have you, first of all, have you always been, uh, a Christian? Have you always been a libertarian? Um, you know, how, how did, how and when did those two things kind of intersect? Yeah, sure. So I was raised in a Christian household and my father was a pastor with a bit of a unique calling and ministry. He sort of went around planting churches and then he would kind of move on and uh, plant a different church and a little bit of sabbatical, you know, here and there in between those times. But I kind of went from church to church growing up. He also did missionary work in Ghana, Africa. And so I've always sort of seen the faith in front of me and have been part of the Christian faith. I was baptized around 13, but I really think that my decision to like 
really follow after Christ. And when I really started to recognize that, that I was born again and sort of uh, understand in a more adult sense what that meant because when when you like the bible says when you're a child you believe like a child and when when you're an adult you you talk and believe like an adult and you know it it happened around the same time as i became a libertarian so your question kind of works into telling the same story because i was in my younger years a still a christian in name and I still believed I was saved and believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But I was very left-leaning, sort of liberal, progressive in both my politics and my Christianity. I didn't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. I didn't believe that, you know, in probably 90% of what Orthodox Christianity would 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 affirm. And my political views were very much left of center. And that was Sort of, you know, both of those things, by the way, it's not a coincidence. I I sort of, I wouldn't say like rebelled, because that's not really the, the right word, but I guess distanced myself or just turned away from my upbringing in terms of being you know, more traditional Christianity and the conservative values that, that my parents and family had. And a lot of it had to do with just like the, the gaffes of the you know, right-wing evangelical movement from the time I was a a child. And when I became a teenager and learned of the true horrors of like the war in Iraq and and Afghanistan and the role that our foreign policy had played into creating that and just realized how much my fellow Christians were arguing for things that I felt and still feel very convicted are contrary to the things that I care the most about pertaining to my Christianity, which is taking care of the least of these and, you know, loving our neighbor and enemy as ourselves. And I just find that to be completely antithetical with, with, you know, senseless war and the killing of just, you know, thousands and really millions of innocent civilians, whether it's through war or embargo or uh, proxy wars or what have you. And the emphasis that was placed on that and then on hating certain groups of people just made me reject both right-wing Christianity and right-wing politics. And so that's kind of how I ended up on the left. But then in 2016, after the election of Donald Trump, when the left started to really radicalize around then... um, I kind of found myself politically homeless and because I I didn't quite believe in the Trump derangement syndrome I I was I was you know maybe maybe like pre 2016 I would have considered myself woke but as woke be, be, began to include more and more things and became more and more radical I decided you know I kind of felt like well I, no this is going too far and so I just became more of a left-leaning centrist, started exploring new ideas politically, and just, you know, through a long series of events, including stumbling upon people like Dave Smith and Tom Woods, found myself becoming a more attracted to libertarian thought and ideas. And then when I took the full red pill, became like an anarcho-capitalist, um, I wanted to go back to the Bible and sort of like see how this might fit in with my Christian faith. And in that journey, 
you know, two things happened. I I discovered not only how deep the roots are between the ideas that libertarians and, and, and anarchists such as myself hold and what the Bible teaches about human authority and government and et cetera. But it also had me studying the scriptures in, in, in a way that I hadn't before and and realizing that perhaps in the same way that my political views had gone too far reactionary against my upbringing, uh, my religious views had as as well. And I, I fell more into uh, a sort of orthodox, semi-reformed uh, Christianity after that. And, and it was around that time that I think my faith, it was sort of like this awakening of my faith insofar as I realized that it wasn't just about believing in the right things to go to heaven. And it wasn't even about that cliche about having a personal relationship. Uh, you know, it's not, it's a relationship, not a religion was kind of the slogan of my youth. And, and like, there's truth to some of those things, but really what I realized is that my, to, to have faith in Jesus Christ is to accept him as, as Lord. And to believe that it's not about just that he saved me to, to get to heaven. So I don't go to hell. It's that he saved me to, live today for him and to live for for his kingdom and his truth and to proclaim the gospel. And so really where I stand now, it's kind of like my political, I don't have, I think before, and I think a lot of us do this, we live and we have different compartments or hats that we wear. Like we have our Christian hats, we have our political hats, we have our workplace hats. And, and now I feel like those those aren't separate anymore. My political views, my Christian views, those are really just the those are the same thing. The Venn diagram is just a circle now. So that's that's kind of the uh, the long short of it, at least. You know, you mentioned how, um, you know, in the wider Christian community, right, you've certainly got your right wing element. Right. We, I mean, we, we both know that. Well, we're probably around the same age. Right. We both remember the George W. Bush years. Um, and and the sort of radical Christian right, um, but there's also a very strong far left element of the wider Christian world as well. Um, and um, you know, in, in, in pertaining to that particular side of it, um, you mentioned taking care of the least of us, right, and all of that, um, and caring for the poor and things like that that are very very central to uh, Christ's message. Um, explain to people listening, you know, why. Why people like us who have come to this more anarch, uh, anarchist uh, libertarian uh, point of view, why using the government to do those things is not congruent with uh, with Christ's message? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, and there's really multiple layers to this, right? And we can maybe scratch at the surface or the, or the, the tip of the iceberg and then go deeper. I mean, I think right right away one runs into two problems when they're trying to use the state to fulfill what you know Christ commanded us in his in his ministry one is that it kind of like takes away the personal agency of it we're supposed to you know it says it doesn't say what you license others to do and did in my name, you know, or or did toward these people you did unto me. It's what you did. So we're not supposed to, uh, you know, sell off our responsibility to to some other group to do these things. We're supposed to do them. The church is supposed to do them. And even if even if the state was an 
a good entity and we weren't libertarians, I would still find something objectionable about, you know, using the public sphere to do what is supposed to be the work of private actors and the church. But then, you know, dig a little bit deeper now, the the state doesn't do things through voluntary associations or through voluntary agreements. Everything the state does is through the either the initiation of force or the threat of force, which is coercion. And this is adding even more, you know, things onto Jesus's command to, you know, uh, that which you've done to the least of these you've done unto me. I don't think what he had in mind was, you know, a giant apparatus of armed men who use the threat of force and violence to extort people's wealth and then give it to others that they deem, you know, are the are the rightful owners of that money, which by the way, disproportionately doesn't go to the least of these. It disproportionately goes to the the ruling elites themselves or their corporate uh, backers or their their lobbyist friends, etc. So there's there's an inefficiency to it, right? Like the the state doesn't actually do a good job at taking care of the least of these. But then even deeper, there's a there's a moral uh, quandary with that that I think a Christian who is being very critical in examining the nature of the state will realize that the state actually is antithetical to that teaching to care for the least of these. Because I think at the bottom, then we see that the greatest perpetrator of violence and harm to the least of these comes from the state. It doesn't matter if it's in America, doesn't matter if it's Russia, doesn't matter if it's uh, any other, any other, any other nation state that exists. The, the nation state now and throughout history has always been the greatest obstacle in the way of peace and human flourishing. I mean, how, so you've studied the Bible quite extensively and, um, and, you know, and I know that just by listening to your podcast, um, how, how would you describe Jesus's own relationship to the state at the time? Um, you know, especially compared to his relationship with the, uh, the Pharisees and sort sort of the, the Jewish, uh, church at the time, um, you know, how, how would you describe his relationship with those two entities and what do you derive from those relationships that we can then sort of as followers ourselves uh, apply to our, our own lives today and our surroundings? Right. So I think right away we have to, there's different ways that we could go at this. I, I want to start by saying that I think the core of the gospel message is, of course, the salvation of the world, that Jesus has conquered death. He has, you know, he said he came to restore what was lost. And so the good news is that we can be reconciled with God. And that's not just about a free pass into heaven. That's about, you know, living out that call here and now. And I, to go deeper, though, I think there's also a necessary component of the gospel and our faith in Jesus as Savior that, that, has to recognize Jesus as Lord, and that means that our our allegiance belongs to Him, and this comes out in many different examples and teachings that Jesus gave. I think a couple just to draw from, because there's many we could. 
the passage render unto Caesar comes to mind for me because this sort of highlights what was commonly you know an issue at that time in in the in the Jewish people and culture you know you had you had some Jews who were siding with with uh with Rome um and and like that was like the the Herod class and then you had those who were sort of like against Rome and and more for Jewish sovereignty and you know a large part of the Jewish people who are who were against you know the Roman rule viewed Caesar as an illegitimate ruler and Caesar you know, declared himself to be Lord or a son of God of sorts. And so there was a divine claim there as well. And they had, they did not recognize the taxation of, of this Lord as legitimate. Um, and they also despised the tax collectors because not only were they serving Caesar, but they were also uh, extorting for their own personal benefit. So that's why you see in the Bible all the time, it's, you know, the, the term tax collector is used as a pejorative. And so that passage is is really key. And a lot of people just read this very surface, uninformed reading of that and go, oh, they asked him if you should pay taxes. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And they completely missed the point of the whole passage. Because it, right away, it says there in the text that the Pharisees set out to trap Jesus. And they asked him the question if it's lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, because they were they knew that if he said yes, that he would anger a large part of the Jewish, you know, people following him and listening to him, because they didn't view the taxation as as legitimate. But if he said no, he could that they would then accuse him of you know causing civil unrest and rebelling against Rome, and they could get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And that's one of the accusations that they later made against him. So Jesus then masterfully answers this question and we have to ask well he did he couldn't have said pay your taxes because if he did the romans wouldn't have the, the that passage ends with the pharisees it says the pharisees walked away astounded at his answer because what he said was you know show me the the coin in question and he asked whose face is on it he's kind of being you know a little bit tongue-in-cheek here and coy with them because it's like um you know, you were, if you had that coin, it meant you were dealing with the Romans. And so he asks them, you know, or he tells them then, you know, the face on this person to Caesar's. So render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's. And we have to really focus on that last part. Render unto God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Well, what belongs to God is, well, first of all, like everything. He's the creator of the universe, right? But, but even more specific than that, our worship belongs to him, and our obedience belongs to him. And as Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. And this ties into why the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, or at least a large number of Jews did, because they were looking for a political savior. And Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not of this world. And so really we see that Although the core of the gospel is about the salvation, and that's, that is the good news to all men, a necessary response to the gospel, once we accept Christ into our heart, is to pledge allegiance to that kingdom. And this is evident throughout all of Jesus' teachings. It's evident throughout that passage, render unto Caesar. Because once you render unto God what is God's, what's left to give to Caesar? You know what I mean? There, there, there's really nothing. So I, I think that's a, you know, 
I could go on for like an hour because there's a lot we could we could talk about in Old and New Testament. But I think that's that's sort of an introductory uh, analysis of of how living for Christ necessarily puts a Christian in some opposition to the rulers of this world. And and Jesus himself, although he didn't advocate for political revolution, he didn't advocate for 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 violence towards political political rulers. He also certainly didn't preach, you know, like obedience to them or uh, view them as like kindred kingdoms of a sort. No, these kingdoms were always rival to his and they pale in comparison to his. And and so I think that's that's the heart of the answer there to your question. Well, I, you know, it's it, like you said, you could we could easily go on for hours about this stuff. And that's and that's part of the reason why I love it. And that's part of the reason why um, I really love digging into scripture and stuff like that, because it is so thought provoking. And the answers aren't necessarily uh, simple or easy to understand all the time. Um, and, and you know, I, I I'll keep reading it and I'll keep realizing new things that I hadn't realized before. Someone will say something or explain something uh, in a way that I never really thought about it before. Um, You know, and I think it's interesting you're talking about that particular passage and um, obedience to the state. And of course, the other passage that people bring up all the time, uh, especially the more uh, left-leaning Christians, but even even the right-leaning Christians as well, um, who, you know, might be more likely to be the ones who would be uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance and, and saluting the flag and that kind of thing. But that's Romans 13, right? Which is, um, and for people who don't know what Romans 13 is, um, the King James Version um, says it this way. Of course, there's a gazillion different versions, um, and that's a whole other uh, story. But um, it says, basically says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, uh, for there is no power but of God. The powers that uh, that be are ordained of God. How do you interpret that? Because it's often interpreted as um, you should uh, subject yourself unto the civil authority. And of course, in in other translations, it 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 takes that passage um, uh, from the, uh, the the King James Version and adds quite a bit to it that isn't there. Um, but I am very curious as to your interpretation of that. Yeah. So. Yeah, Romans thirteen is is another commonly quoted passage when discussing, you know, what the Bible teaches about politics. And on the surface level, if you don't don't study uh, the Greek, if you take that passage in sort of isolation, it can it can read very much that way. Um, so I've done again. I'm going to condense this because I I have literally like a two hour podcast that's fully breaking Romans thirteen down with a good friend of mine, Greg, who's also uh, a podcaster at the Libertarian Christian Institute. But there's a couple things to keep in mind when really reading anything in 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 the Bible, which is that we have to understand the author who wrote it, who was it written to, what was the historical context, what was the format of the book, and and those things come into play here the chapter subdivisions in really a lot of the bible didn't come about until later and, and certainly romans was written as a letter and didn't have these chapter and verse uh divisions they certainly had you know like any you know piece of writing will it has like you know it'll move from subject to subject but romans is, is supposed to you know you, you kind of have to read it as a bit of a connected uh, 
piece. You know, you can't just take pieces out of, out in isolation and overanalyze it without understanding its place in the broader context of that letter. And so what's important, again, in any reading any scripture, but what's especially important here while reading Romans 13 is to go back to Romans 12. I understand, like, how does Romans 12 end and lead into Romans 13? Because Paul doesn't just, like, do a 180 here. Romans 12 talks about sort of like our obligations and duties as Christians to each other and to the people around us. And it ends uh, talking about how we should not overcome the evil of this world with more evil, but rather we overcome evil with good. And so we have to love our neighbors and our enemies. We have to, you know, nobly bear our cross, nobly bear persecution. And we have to trust in God ultimately because, you know, God is the one who will bring vengeance, it says. He says, vengeance belongs to me. And that is not our role to do. But rather, it's echoing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and things even in the Old Testament about how when people are persecuting us and doing evil towards us, that when we respond with love and by doing good unto them, that that is actually the most powerful way to dispel what is happening and to overcome it and for God to be at work. And then as Romans 12, Romans 12 ends, we go into Romans 13, we have to keep in mind that Paul and everything he writes is is very good at predicting questions and objections that people will have to the things he writes. You know, he, he very often he'll write like, so does this mean this? By no means. And so he he's always thinking like that. And so a logical question someone might have when they hear Romans 12 is like, okay, so are we supposed to be pacifists? Are we supposed to just let people persecute us to, you know, no end? Is, th- is there no limit? If there's someone going out and causing a lot of harm in society, are we supposed to just just step back and let them, you know, let them go unabated? And so Romans 13 starts out by saying that let everyone be subject to the higher powers or higher authorities. The word that's used there isn't the state. And it says that there is no no authority except that which comes from God. So just connecting that to God's sovereignty over everything. And that, you know, true authority is an extension of of you know of justice and of of God Himself. The key part here in Romans 13, and again connecting it to Romans 12, is when he describes the higher powers or the governing authorities. Because he says, if you do not want to fear that those who are in authority do good and you will receive the same. But if you do evil, beware, for he, the person in authority, does not bear the sword in vain. Rather, they are an avenger, a minister of God for your good. So, right away we have to start asking ourselves some questions here. And, and looking at this critically, whoever the governing authorities are, what what God is, through Paul, talking about here is that they are not a terror to those who are doing good, but rather to those who, who are doing evil. And the mistake that people make when reading this passage is they automatically think that the subject is the state, and then therefore they think that Paul is just describing the state, and the state is this you know, minister of God for our good. Well, that just flies in the face of not only like basic reality 
and and critical analysis of the state throughout history. It also flies in the face of the Bible because there are countless examples of Jews and Christians not submitting to the state. Um, you have Daniel three. You have you know Daniel himself in the lion's den. Moses stands up to Pharaoh, doesn't, you know, subject to the governing authorities. Jesus many times doesn't subject himself to the, the governing authorities, except when he's doing so to fulfill, you know, the, 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 the crucifixion so that he can conquer, conquer death and, and, you know, die for our sins. The apostles themselves, many of them uh, continue to ignore the, the issues and, and dictates of both the Jewish and Roman governments. And the early church was often seen as this, you know, thorn in the side of the the ruling authorities. So it's like, okay, are people just not like, did people just skip over Romans 13? Did, did the Old Testament people get it wrong and didn't know about Romans 13? No, we have to understand that this passage is not describing the state. Rather, what Paul is talking about here, again, connecting it to Romans 12, is that it is not your job to seek out revenge against those who do wrong to you, but there is a godly instituted role for the pursuit of civil justice and that there are those who will act in authority and a sort of civil authority to pursue that civil justice. But what we as libertarians and anarchists understand is that government or the act of governing, the act of, of administering laws is not synonymous with the state. The state, although it claims to have a monopoly over the roles and functions of civil governance, and it claims that it's the only arbiter of civil justice, this is actually a fallacious claim on the uh, on behalf of the state. And rather, the state mocks in <laughs> the face of actual law and order and laughs in the face of God's moral decrees. And it laughs in the face of what Romans 13 says, because Romans 13 says that those in authority are not a terror to those who do good. And we know from the Bible itself and from our own ability to observe the world around us that the state is indeed a terror to those who do good on a daily basis. And so Romans 13 cannot be read to be describing the state. Rather, Romans 13 is prescribing the norms for civil governance, which if we're going to, and, and actually Romans 13, instead of becoming some sort of haymaker in the face of the idea of Christian libertarianism or Christian anarchism, rather I think Romans 13 is in many ways one of the strongest proof texts we have against statist interpretations of Christianity. And it's actually an argument for civil governance, and, and it's described in a way that if we read it, and we also read it in context with everything else the Bible teaches about human authority and governance, we realize that all of these authorities must necessarily be limited, and they, everyone who's acting in authority must be subject to the same moral decrees that they're trying to enforce. And therefore, any type of governance for it to be biblical by default, as by consequence, is going to be some form of libertarianism or anarchism. 
Even it's, if you don't call. It's so funny. It's exactly what I was thinking when you when you mentioned that part about um, you know being a terror to those uh, is not a terror to those who do good or is a terror to those who do bad. Was, that's exactly what I was thinking. Was like you know clearly that's not um, the state that we know today and um, and um, act, in, in that how it is completely certainly not Rome. the reverse. <laughs> certainly um, not Rome. And I mean, if anything, right. it's like how often are the governing authorities actually the evil ones doing bad it's like <laughs> like if the true governing authorities would be persecuting the state because look at i mean like look at stories like you know jeffrey epstein and all the stuff with like the clintons and and all these like ruling elites and families in control of everything and all the evil things that they're doing uh at the expense of innocent people it's like yeah, these people are not what Romans 13 is talking about. They're they're actually better examples of what Romans 13 would would be in would would be used to authorize punishing. <laughs> so which is which is in key, you know, Satan told Jesus that the kingdoms of this world are are mine and and I can give them to you. And and there are so many times in the Old and New Testament where Satan is described as the ruler of this world. So the the kingdoms of men have always you know, actually been the kingdoms of Satan from a biblical perspective. And yeah, I mean, now certainly God can use them, right? God used Babylon to punish Israel as he used Assyria. Um, you know, God used the Romans and their evil to bring about the cross, to bring about the greatest good ever done. Well, that's a, that's a testament to God's ability to make good out of evil. Not that the evil isn't evil. So funny. If, if if my dad's listening to this right now, he's just nodding along with what you're saying. You know, <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the Satan being the, the god of this world and everything like that. Um, and you know, it it's funny that the older I get and the the more you look around, the more it, it it's the or I should say the the harder it is to to sort of argue against that. Um, you know, it, it's things do seem to get clearer and clearer the more you look at them. Um, so. I want to ask you about capitalism because, um, you know, as libertarians, uh, you know, we're both in favor of free market capitalism. Um, and I'm wondering how, from a Christian perspective, um, you would reconcile capitalism, the idea of making money and accumulating money, um, and the idea of giving everything up and following Christ or living a life of poverty, you know, how do how do you reconcile those two things, um, sure. or, or is there some sort of misunderstanding there? Yeah, so there's a couple ways we could talk about that. I mean, even if there was some sort of decree by Christ to live humbly in some sort of life of poverty, that would still be voluntary and wouldn't necessarily be against free markets or capitalism. You know, it depends how you define it. I suppose, you know, we could say that maybe the accumulation of wealth would be bad, but it doesn't mean that free trade and, you know, voluntary uh, associations are bad. It doesn't mean that private property rights are bad. It doesn't mean that the collective ownership of, of, of property or the means of production would be good. You know, it, it could just mean that Christians within a capitalist society are not called to accumulate wealth. I think that's probably the most you could say in, from a Christian point of view, in critique of capitalism, because I I don't think that you can do, um, 
I don't think you can pull from the scriptures anything that'd be contrary to private property rights, that would be contrary to voluntary association, that would be uh, contrary to the uh, the idea of self-ownership even. And and so and, and definitely it would be very hard to make an argument for like the the collective ownership of 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 property or the means of production. I know in Acts they said they held all things in common, but I mean we're that's kind of like a church holds some things in common and a family owns some things in common. So sure, your your local your micro local voluntary communism, I mean, maybe kind of works, but it only works in the context of a private property free market society. Um, I, mean, I think right away, do not steal begs the question of what is theft. And you can't really define theft without the idea of private property and property being owned by uh, individuals. Because if everyone owns everything, you can't steal because it's yours. So just logically to, to even define theft, we have to first you know, understand the presupposition there is that people can own things and they can have a rightful claim to those things that then someone violates. And so that's property rights right there. We can also go to a passage like Matthew 20, which from remembering the chapter number correctly, is the uh, the parable of the workers in the uh, the vineyard, which which basically, if you read that passage, I'm not going to read like recite the whole thing here. I've done a podcast episode on that actually, but it basically says at one point that like the owner of the property, like the master of the land or the the owner of a workplace, you know, that they had the ultimate say over what they do with that. And, and they can choose to do with their property that which they please, even if you don't think it's fair, <laughs> which is like a slap in the face against progressive Christianity. You think like, well, it has to be fair. You can't, you know, hoard wealth. It's like, well, listen, maybe we could say that person's being selfish and, and a good Christian wouldn't hoard wealth to the, uh, you know, see others in need and not do anything. But at the very least, we can't justify the use of violence or coercion, state or otherwise, against people just because they're peacefully making a lot of money. So I would say that's the distinct, you know, the, the distinction there is in where we use violence. I think that's kind of like what's what libertarianism and anarchism can be defined in many different ways as can anything but i think one interesting way to define it is really that it's just a question right it's a question of when is the use of force justified and the answer is only as a response against those who have initiated force and that's just basically the me saying the inverse of the non-aggression principle which is that we don't have the right to initiate force against others who are acting peacefully and unless you buy into some sort of like socialist mindset that uh, everything is owned in common and by hoarding wealth and property, you're violating people's rights, which again, I don't think the Bible would support that. Um, we, we cannot justify the use again, the use of force against people just because they're rich. Now we might say, you know, we can certainly make private judgments about people and that, you know, if they call themselves a Christian, but they're, you know, rich billionaires living on yachts and not, you know, living out their Christian duty to care for the least of these and stuff. There, there's certainly a, an element of there that I would agree with. And so there's a little bit of nuance there. I think the accumulation of wealth can be good if it's not done to the glory of oneself, but rather done to the uh, the glory of God's kingdom and into the advancement of 
of you know doing kingdom things here on earth like if you're accumulating a lot of wealth but then you're do you're using it to enable a lot of good to enable a lot of missionary work or ministries targeted at helping the poor and the disenfranchised or building businesses that employ a lot of people I mean, that's one thing we got to consider that's a plus in the capitalist side is that you know if christians are against the idea of like people living impoverished and we're supposed to help them. Capitalism is one of the best ways to help people because it gives them opportunities, gives them technologies that make their lives easier. And so I, I think that it's, you know, although there's a couple little, you know, things I would give to the anti-capitalist side in terms of people acting selfishly or greedy, by and large, the Bible would, I think, strongly be in favor of a, you know, free market capitalist, whatever you want to call it, but free, free trade, private property rights society. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I think about my own, um, my own Quaker faith and Quaker history and uh, Quakers throughout time have been historically very uh, active in the business world um, and, you know, have historically acted in ways through those businesses, using them as a, a vocation to do lots of good Um in the world and you know lately the the word even the word business uh has become a very dirty word um amongst many quakers um and it's become a very it's a very progressive um religion today um and i think it's interesting that you know it's not it's not the system that's bad right it's it's how you use it and you know the idea of you know making money and accumulating wealth well you can do bad things with that wealth right or you can do good things with that wealth and like you said you know growing your business putting that wealth back into your business and employing more people uh in and of itself is um you know is is giving people the means to uh to work themselves and earn an honest living and all of that stuff um one thing i wanted to ask you about that you that you mentioned is the idea of force right and uh when it comes to libertarianism this is obviously the the most crucial issue um and, and also in the Christian world, you know, there's many who uh, are pacifists. Um, of, of course, as a Quaker, I'm a pacifist myself. Um, but there are, of course, many other Christians who believe in the idea of self-defense and that there's a, um, you know, there is a time to use violence um, and that it is not a sin uh, to use violence if it's done in self-defense. Um, just what is your personal view on on that, on pacifism and the use of force? Yeah, so... I'm probably as close to a pacifist as one can be without being a full pacifist. So, or if there were stages to pacifism, maybe I'm like a, you know, early stage pacifist. I don't know. But <laughs> I think pacifists have a lot right. And I think that there is, if I was going to critique something in libertarianism, uh, even in like conservatism or in like gun culture, which I mean, I'm a gun owner and I believe in, in the right to self-defense, but as a Christian, especially, I think we have to find the right wording here. We have to support and uphold the right to self-defense, but we have to understand that that right is also in tension with our Christian obligation to love our neighbors and our enemies and our uh, the decree, that's again in Romans 12, to live at peace with all as far as it depends on us. And so there's a there's a tricky balance there. I think what we have to avoid are a few things. We have to avoid living with hate in our heart, especially with hate towards our enemies. If you're hating your enemies, you're not doing Christianity right. Now, loving your neighbor and loving your enemy 
sometimes those come into conflict when your enemy is doing harm to your neighbor. And so that's really like the question, right? Because I think most Christians and libertarians would agree that free markets, voluntary associations, uh, you know, governance that's not done through the state, this creates a much more peaceful society by default. And we're all moving in the same direction on, on those topics. When it comes to then, what do we do then if we've eliminated all these different types of coercion and violence down to just, you know, random acts of, you know, private individuals tyrannizing other individuals? And I think that... So there, there's a couple of things I want to say. I'm not sure the right order, so I'll just I'll just start spouting it out. I think where the where the pa- where the pacifist view runs in the problem is sort of with like what my interpretation of Romans 13 is, which is that I do think there is a necessary role for civil governance, and I do think that at some point, although I I think Bob Murphy has done great work as other libertarians have on how free markets can uh, govern disputes and do so in ways that favor nonviolent or non-force involved solutions. And I think that's all true. But I, I just do, I think, you know, as Christians, we have to, we also have to understand the depravity of man and the, the fallen nature of man and that there will be some people who are just, you know, set out to do violence against someone else. And I think, yeah, at some point there has to be someone who's going to stop that person. And I don't know how you do that without force. Now, in favor of the pacifist point of view, what I don't like in what I was saying earlier, what I don't like in gun culture or in some Christian circles or libertarian circles, conservative circles, what have you, is this sort of like bloodlust? Is this sort of like, uh, you know, I wish a mother effer would, you know, and kind of like relishing the opportunity to use force against someone if they initiated it? And I don't think that's a Christian mi- mindset at all. Um, we should be great we should be deeply sorrowful at any point when we have to use retaliatory or defensive force in the protection of the innocent like that should be a tragedy because it means we failed like someone because i don't believe as much as i believe in the depravity of humans i also think that people typically don't get to the point where they're that violent without some type of violence being done upon them or some kind of brokenness in them that wasn't addressed. And, you know, the church, we need to be out there trying to, to reach broken and lost souls and lead them to the light of Christ. And, and you know, if when, when people have initiated violence and we have to use force against them, that's, that's a tragedy. And, and we should always, you know, prevention is better than cure. We should always be trying to, you know, uh, improve the lives of people around us so much that, uh, People do not become desperate or become victimized or, you know, or, or, or consider using force, at least to, you know, the, the most we can in this fallen world. That should be our goal. When we use force, again, this is kind of a point towards pacifism, we should be questioning what's the minimal amount of force we can use to stop the situation. And I'd, I'd think that there's a strong case to be made that even if we can't like do total pacifism where like there's no force allowed, maybe it would be like the purest pacifist view. Um, we can make a strong argument for finding and, and maximizing the amount of non-lethal means of ending predation. You know, there's non-lethal 
ballistic round. There's ways of uh, disarming and disabling someone that you know would cause them some pain and and dis- and, and discomfort and uh, involve the in- use of force to to stop them. But they don't necessarily result in ending their life. Um, now there is some question as to the you know does everyone have equal access to these non-lethal means and so it's like the tricky thing is like i don't want to judge someone who to the best of their knowledge had you know uh, d- didn't have the the means or the knowledge of non-ballistic means and so they used a gun in self-defense i'm not judging that i'm just saying that i think that a strong pref- preference and emphasis in our christian circles and in the culture should be towards uh non-lethal ways of of solving issues when we do have to use force and then you know if 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 lethal force has to be used we should you know we should pray about that we should grieve over that you know if lethal force is used efforts should be made to resuscitate the person or sustain them um in the event that their life can be saved and if someone you know so then what do we do after that right because that's also something that has to come into play here is like what happens when we stop the criminal well we can't just I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't believe in just locking them in a cage for the rest of their life in cruel conditions that are, you know, like we're lumping them in with a bunch of other violent criminals and what do we just hold them forever or do we let them back out and expect they're going to be better? No, we we have to also have whatever our system of civil justice is. It has to be one that is, you know, based on two things. One, restitution. So like theft, you have to repay what you, you know, stole with interest maybe. making people whole. That's an important part of justice, but restorative justice is another concept that has to come into the conversation here. And I think that when we have to use force, it should be minimal. And once we've stopped it, we should then hope and pursue any avenue of rehabilitating this person so that they don't do it again. And we're not just then keeping them locked up in perpetuity and, uh, a risking that they'll get out and do more violence to people or B blackening our own souls by ending their lives or C keeping them locked in a cage for the rest of their lives, which, you know, someone has to pay for that. Um, and, and these people are often further abused in, in prison situations, even in private prisons, I'd be skeptical of how long you could hold someone, you know, forcefully like that without, there has to be an element of, of rehabilitation there. So I think that, it's a very complicated discussion, right? And while I'm not a pacifist myself, I, I consider pacifists a, you know, you know, close close cousins or brothers from like the perspective I have, which is not, you know, I'm not anti-pacifist. I just think that, and, and to be clear, I've also talked to pacifists who basically agree with everything I say. So it sometimes it's just a matter of defining terms and not all pacifists are against all uses of force or in every situation, um, and pacifists rightly point out there's a lot of ways you can solve conflict without using force, and and that's that is that is a legitimate criticism. You know, I'm a I'm a big advocate of peaceful parenting, and the way I often argue for peaceful parenting is the same way that I'd argue for like free markets, and uh, same way that pacifists can argue for for pacifism, which is that when we take violence off the table. And we force ourselves to be innovative, to let that innovative spirit and force that works to create all the different goods and services that free markets are capable of doing. That same human creativity and ingenuity can be at play towards helping us to think of things we never would have thought of 
to solve disputes without force, or at least with the you know most minimal amount of force possible. So, you know, it, the way I've often said it is this: if pacifism is a like is a religious commitment to never using force. That's where I would say I'm not a pacifist, but a pacifism is just a direction that is about embracing nonviolence as the norm and only deviating that when all other, when all peaceful means of solving an issue have been exhausted. That's something that I think that I could get behind. And I think that that encapsulates the, you know, the best parts of Christianity and libertarian anarchism. You know, I do think even as a strict pacifist, if you were to commit an act of violence and you felt really horrible about it, you know, if you killed somebody and you were truly sorry and you truly asked for forgiveness for it um, and that you really wished maybe that you could have found a different way to handle the situation, you know, I, the God that I pray to, I feel like, you know, would hopefully I would hope would, you know, find forgiveness for me for that. Um, but it is such a yeah, fascinating I mean, God- conversation. Yeah, and no, I think God is faithful to forgive all sin. So even if we, I mean, I think God is faithful to forgive someone who murders in cold blood and right. through some act of intervention of the Spirit comes to repent and grieve. Now, that doesn't mean they're free from the earthly consequences of of that action, but it does mean that they, right. can, they can receive forgiveness. I don't believe that there's any sin that, that we can commit that, you know, can can truly separate us from the, the love of Christ. So... That's that's an important element of this, and and yeah, I, I agree. It's complicated, and I think everyone in this conversation has to approach it humbly. You know, I think pacifists bring up really good points, and I think even though I have criticisms of of the pacifist point of view, there are so many pros to it, and and so many parts of it that I think are coming from the right place, and that are coming from um, wanting to honor what's in the scripture. That I I don't like. I'm not an anti-pacifist. It's just a it's a, it's a matter of it's just like like it's like anything, right? Like as an anarchist, I obviously don't live in an anarchist world, and there's a lot of things I do that are kind of in contrary to my anarchist beliefs. Like I pay my taxes, and I listen to the state, even when I think they're being when I when I think it's wrong and the law is unjust. It's like, you know, we all have to kind of do the best with what we're given, and I don't think it's a violation of a moral principle to sometimes recognize that we live in a world that pre- prevents us from you know, fully realizing those principles. I think our jobs is, you know, our job is always to be pushing for those things and and pushing the, the Overton window and the direction of a society always towards peace and always towards Christ. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Well, that sounds good to me. And, uh, you know, and, and I also just want to say, I agree with you about the provocation thing. You know, I you see a lot of this on Twitter, obviously. And I think, you know, it's, it is kind of ironic to see libertarians, who are constantly talking about, you know, uh, Russia being provoked by NATO and and uh, the United States and Ukraine, yet constantly provoking people with their language and and things like that. I think you're right. I think we could all use a little, really cool things down a little bit, have a little bit less provocation of our own. Um, Jacob, thank you so much for joining me. This is such a fascinating conversation, and I love talking about this stuff, and you know so much about it. Please tell everyone listening uh, where they can find out more about you, where they can listen to your podcast, um, and all of that all of that information. Yeah, sure. So you can find um, me at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, or you can look for Biblical Anarchy Podcast wherever you watch podcasts, whether it's YouTube Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Um, and you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Biblical Anarchy. 
and I also have pages on Facebook and, and Instagram, so you can follow everything I'm doing there. And also, please follow Libertarian Christian Institute. We have a lot of cool stuff coming up. I'm actually going to be at Freedom Fest in a couple weeks from now, and we're doing a couple sessions there on Christian nationalism. So that'll be interesting. So, um, but yeah, thanks again, Eric, for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation and the opportunity to talk about these, these ideas with you. Thank you too, man. I'll talk to you soon. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.